Well, good morning, everyone. Well, let me open us with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity we have again to open up your word. But Lord, also thank you for our prayer groups where we can share one another's burdens and and through sharing prayer requests, we get to know each other. We get to know more about each other's lives. And I just thank you for that precious time um, at the beginning of every Sunday school class. And I pray now for our hearts to turn to your word. I pray that as I begin to teach this next portion of scripture, that you give me clarity, that you'll give me wisdom with how I communicate. And I pray that each one of us will have ears to hear so that we'll apply the appropriate lessons from your word to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we find ourselves now in Second Peter, and we're in the first chapter, and we are actually coming to the end of the very first teaching section of the book. This morning, we're going to start covering verses 10 and 11. And as I've mentioned before, and I'm just doing a brief summary, the opening few verses really are a powerful testament of the work of God in the lives of His children, of God sovereignly saving us, of sending His Son and choosing by His power and His glory to make us a part of His family. God gives us the faith. He gives us everything we need for life and godliness through His Word, through His Spirit, through our salvation. And so initially, the work of God and what He's already done for believers is Peter's focus. And then in verses 5 to 7, he immediately shifts to the implications of our salvation it should result in a different type of life. So, for example, in verse 5, he says, Now for this very reason also, because of the marvelous work of God for God's provision, he says, Applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. So God's given us all we need, and then as we covered those verses, we see that we're supposed to act on what God's given us. Our lives are supposed to exhibit these qualifications, and we're supposed to work diligently at it. We're supposed to work hard. God has given us faith, and then our response to faith is to develop Christ-like character and live it out. There's no room for laziness. We have to exert our energies as believers. And then last week we covered verses 8 and 9, where again it's the same thematic focus, for if these qualities, all those godly characteristics, are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. And again, I'm just summarizing this quickly. The teaching is available online for any of these. But he was basically saying there's two responses to a profession of faith. One is the godly response that exhibits those qualities of verses 5 to 7 that's increasing, that's growing, that's striving to be more like Jesus Then will produce fruit. And Jesus said, you know, a tree by its fruit. The flip side is if we don't ever have these qualities in our lives, and I'm not talking about having them perfectly, but I mean at all, then the reality is our profession is false. He says we're blind or short-sighted. In other words, somebody that never has these Christian characteristics in their life, they never at all try and obey, 
they're deceived. And it doesn't matter if they've gone through the ritual of baptism. It doesn't matter if they've joined a church. It doesn't matter how many sermons they've heard. The reality is if their life doesn't reflect anything of Christ's character, then their profession is a lie. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. That doesn't mean that somebody works their way into heaven. But what it does mean is that if you've been transformed, if you've been regenerated, if God has given you his gift of salvation, then it's going to have an impact in how you live. And that causes Peter to close out this introductory section with an exhortation. And as I started studying this week, I thought, well, this is two verses. I'll just be able to zip through this. And then as I've finished up, and I normally have 10 pages of notes to teach in class, and as I saw page 11 disappear, and I was on to page 12, and I realized I was only on the first half of the first verse, it's going to take more than a couple of weeks, more than one week to get through these two verses. So follow along with me as I read verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, I think as we cover this, in the big picture, these verses, even though they have some language that we'll need to dissect to make sure we properly understand it, I think they're relatively easy to understand. Although, again, on a couple of points, I'll clarify what's not being taught so that we don't misunderstand it. Yet this exhortation, I'm convinced, deals with something that Peter wants us to have, but I know from my experience as a believer, is something that is elusive and challenging for many believers. It's not supposed to be, but over and over again, there are countless believers who have struggled with this issue. What is the issue? I believe in these verses, Peter is talking about the assurance of our salvation. Knowing that we are a part of God's family, knowing that we are saved. The confidence that the promises of God, including the promises of eternity with Him, are not only true, but that they're our promises, they're our experience, they're our reality. It's a crucial matter in the lives of believers, something that the New Testament talks about repeatedly. And the assurance of our salvation is supposed to be a blessing, but sadly, for many believers, it's not. In fact, it's a source of concern and anxiety and worry. But it is supposed to be a blessing. And I think if we rightly understand even these two verses that Peter is sharing, which will cause us to look at many other verses... I hope that it will not be an issue for you. I hope that you will have assurance of your salvation and confidence in the promises of God. So for purposes of an outline, it's a three-part outline. It's just the promises 
of our assurance. The promises of our assurance. And while I thought I would cover all three, the reality is we're only going to deal with the first one and I probably won't even complete the first one today. But my first point is this. Assurance is obtainable. Assurance is obtainable. In other words, it's possible for a believer to have assurance. Beginning in verse 10, Peter says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. And we're going to go through all of this. But the beginning part is why it's connected to everything that precedes, therefore, brethren. It's interesting. He's talking to them in a very personal way. He's writing to believers. We've talked about that before. He's writing to individuals who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, and he's calling them his brothers, which is, of course, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a tender appeal, an appeal based on love and care and concern. It's not a rebuke, but it is an exhortation saying, this is where you need to be. And the therefore ties back into verses 5 through 9. Those godly characteristics that we're supposed to exhibit once we have faith and we're supposed to be growing in them, verses 5 to 7. And in verses 8 and 9, we're either fruitful because we're growing and increasing or we're deceived and we're still blind. Peter doesn't want anybody to fit in the category of being blind and nearsighted. He doesn't want anybody missing what God has given to his children. So while he's addressing everyone as believers, he is, again, laying out something of a challenge. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. It's interesting because he's already talked to them about exerting effort. In verse 5, he says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence. It's the same root word. In other words, this is something we are to work at. This is not a passive activity. Be all the more diligent to make certain. Every commentator I read says there's an urgency in this appeal. This isn't something to wait till next week or wait till the summer or wait till you have time. This is something that has to occur immediately. Right now, today, diligence, zealousness, and it's all directed to the issue of assurance. Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Again, there's a lot here in the words he uses, but a lot of it we've already dealt with in the work of God and our salvation. To make certain really is a word for confirmation. In a legal setting, it would be the validity of a document, for example, like a will. But it's making sure that what is there is genuine, that it's real. So he's telling us that we should make sure that we are genuine, that we are real. He's talking about the sovereign work of God, His calling us, His choosing us. 
He's highlighting the work of God. I didn't read it before, but I'm going to go back and read the first four verses. I summarized them. But he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith, as we taught then, it was a gift from God. This isn't something we went out and found. We were given it by God of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness, not of ourselves, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us. Again, it's the work of God. Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he, God, has granted to us another gift, the actions of God. His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So he's basically saying here that all of the work of God, his calling us out of darkness into his wonderful light, his choosing us before the foundation of the world, all of these things can be verified. They're theological concepts, but what he's telling us as individuals, and this is a very personal thing. This isn't a collective exhortation to the church. This is to each one of us individually. This is work that only you or I can do. He's telling us that the work can be done. You can validate whether you've been called and chosen by God. Again, in no way is he saying that we earn our salvation or that our salvation is because of us. And I'm going to spend some time here because this can be confusing, although it's not confusing yet. But he is calling us to make sure that God has actually worked in our lives. So again, only God chooses someone for salvation. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Calling and choosing all the work of God. A familiar passage in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So Peter, again, is not confusing the issue. It is God's calling and choosing, not ours. But he's saying that you can validate whether you've truly been called or chosen. And he says it should be based on how we live. Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Again, this is very personal. I can't do this for you. I can't do this for my wife. She can't do this for me. And now we're getting closer to the confusing part, but I don't want to be confused. I hope I can explain it clearly. Peter would not have told us to work hard to make certain our calling 
and God's choice of us if it wasn't possible to know. We can be certain. It is possible to know that we are saved, but you don't have to take my word for it. The Apostle John wrote a relatively short letter. We call it 1 John. And you find this in 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. We can be certain. We can know. But now the banana peels come out. This is where we can get tripped up and this creates a little bit of a paradox for some and it creates confusion for some. But let me start with what Scripture teaches. What do you diligently examine to be certain that you've been called and chosen? The only genuine proof of our salvation is our actions in our heart. Our response to the gospel message. Again, I'm going to go to 1 John. But the proof of our salvation is our lives. 1 John 5, beginning at verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. John here was simply teaching what he had learned from Jesus himself. In the gospel that John wrote, he recorded this in chapter 14, verse 15. It's a simple phrase. Jesus' words, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In fact, in my experience, this is the forgotten part of the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what I originally was taught was the Great Commission. Certainly we get excited when we hear of missionaries going. But that's not the end. Verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So here's where we can get tripped up. This is where things can get confusing. And this is where it's possible for people to misunderstand the teaching of Scripture. And I don't want that to be the case for any of us. But along the lines of what I'm about to say, I was once accused of heresy. I'll talk to you a little bit more about that. I was accused of heresy for what I said, but I'm not a heretic. Some people think that if your assurance of salvation is based on your response to the gospel, your actions, then inevitably that must be a work salvation. And the gospel is clear that salvation is not by works. Ephesians 2, 
8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's clear. And I believe it with all my heart. And so if I were to say to someone, the way you know you're saved is based on how you live, for them, it becomes an issue. Wait, you're saying my works? But we're not saved as a result of works. And many, because I've experienced this in my life, will take a different passage. For example, Romans 10, 8 and 9. And it says this, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the argument becomes like this. All you have to do is believe. Don't look at your life. Don't look at how you live. Just believe. Don't doubt your belief. Did you pray that prayer? Do you remember when you walked forward? Don't doubt. Don't look at your life. Remember that you believed. Now the surface logic to this, just believe. Why is there a surface logic to it? Because it's true. Just believe. But here's the problem. And this is the clear teaching of the New Testament. Not all believing is the same. Not all believing is the same. I'm going to tell you, you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you can believe that He died on the cross. And if your heart's not right, you're still in trouble. James 2.19. I've quoted this countless times, teaching a lot of different things. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. And the demons don't just believe in some intellectual way. They know it's true. As an unbeliever, and I think it was part of the time when God was starting to draw me, I would read certain scriptures and they would fascinate me. One would be Mark chapter 1, verses 23 to 24. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, a demon. And he cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's true. He did know. He knew he was talking to the judge. The Spirit believed Jesus was the Holy One of God. He believed that Jesus was the righteous judge. And yet that type of belief didn't save him. So I'm going to try and refute the accusation of heresy against me. I believe with all my heart, if you believe as the scriptures define belief, you are saved. And that salvation does not in any way depend on what I do. I can't live a good enough life to get God's favor. It's purely a gift. I'll read it again. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
But I also believe, and this is where the rubber, so to speak, meets the road, borrowing Javern and McGee's common terminology, that true belief results in a transformed life. It results in a change in behavior. The change in behavior doesn't cause the belief, it doesn't cause the salvation, but you cannot truly believe in a salvific sense and not have some change in your life. Because we read Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When God was choosing us from eternity past, God had good works prepared for each one of us to walk in them. We are saved to do the good works that God called us to do, which is why Jesus can say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There have been raging Theological controversies over that. Books have been written. I read lots of them in seminary where journal articles are going back and forth arguing that point. But the scriptures are very clear. How do you know if you love Jesus? You obey his commandments. I ended last week with words from James and I'm going to read and I'm going to add a verse to it. James is always near and dear to my heart because it's the first book after I was genuinely saved that I ever heard taught from the beginning to end. James chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an infectional doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. That summarizes so much of what Peter is teaching. It's what Jesus taught. Which is this, if God gives you a new heart and enables you to believe and he's called you and he's chosen you, then the evidence of that will be in how you live your life. You'll be a doer of the word, not someone who deludes themselves by listening and not doing. I wish I had marked down the date, but the very first sermon I ever preached in Lakeside was the evening service in February of 27, 2007. I was candidating. Debbie and I flew in from California. We flew up to North Florida, left our kids, drove down here. And that Sunday night I preached, and I preached on this text. And there's a whole other story of that where God answered a prayer, but it actually really messed me up because I asked for me not to think about myself because I didn't want to perform. I wanted to teach the Word of God. And from my perspective, it was the worst sermon I've ever preached. At one point, I was looking at the doors over where the choir room and I was thinking if I walked off the stage right now Debbie and I could avoid the embarrassment we'll just go back to California <laughs> I mean it was horrible and I can't explain to you what it's like when you're teaching but it was horrific now 
God answered my prayers because I wasn't thinking about how wonderful I was doing and whether anybody was impressed. I was thinking, when will this be over so I can leave? So I came down off the stage and the very first person that came up to me was a man and wife. Now, I'd been in Florida. I, mean, I grew up in Florida, but I'd been here at church for less than 24 hours. And the man, after I finished preaching, said, you know, I heard what you're saying and I understand you come from seminary where John MacArthur's instructor. He said, I just want to be clear. My wife and I didn't agree. I just want, you were just teaching a work salvation, right? That would be heresy. So not only did I want to leave, I'm like, what did they hear? <laughs> what did I say? Now, I really believe with all my heart in hindsight, unless it's one of you and I apologize, um, I believe that was just a satanic attack because that person didn't go to Lakeside. None of the elders knew who it was. But the point is this. I was saying that it matters how you live. Why was I saying that? Because the scriptures say it matters how you live. John MacArthur was in the middle of the controversy because he wrote a book about the, called The Gospel According to Jesus, which basically said, if Jesus is your Savior, He's your Lord, and you have to live a certain way. But if you believe that it's only believing... And then I can go about my life and maybe someday if I want to make Jesus Lord, that's okay. You were offended by his book and that's where the person was coming at me. If you've been saved, though it will be imperfect, though you will still struggle, you will be trying to be a doer of the word. And if you're not a doer of the word at all, Yes, I prayed a prayer, but then I'll go about my life and live however I want to live. And at some point, I'll pull out my ticket out of my pocket, kind of like a dry cleaning slip, and say, I got a belief. You'll hear Jesus say, I never knew you. Despite the fact that you're going, Lord, Lord. You'll be the type of person that's blind and nearsighted that Peter referenced in verse 9. So assurance is possible. You can make certain of God's calling and choosing you. You can know that you truly believe. But the only way to do that is to honestly examine your own life. Which will mean you're also honest with yourself when you look in the mirror. We'll be examining our lives to see if there's evidence that we love Jesus that goes beyond lip service. Do we obey him? That's why Peter's not alone in this type of exhortation. 2 Corinthians 13.5, a familiar passage to many of us. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Philippians 2.12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the way we make certain of God's calling and choosing of us is by looking in the mirror and looking in our own hearts and saying, do we see God working in us? Now again, I want to encourage us. None of us obeys perfectly. And for some, 
their persistent struggles against sin is why they start to doubt their assurance. They read a passage, for example, like 1 John 1, 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And they think, well, I sinned. That's darkness. I must not be in the truth. Let me try and give you comfort from that. It's the challenge, but it's the comfort. Neither Peter or any other writer is saying that we will never, ever sin again. That's not their point. Now, we don't ever have to sin. God gives us the way of escape. We have His Word. We have His Spirit. We're called to be holy as God is holy. Yet the reality is we still live in these fleshly bodies. Such that Paul's words in Romans chapter 7 are true of us. Romans 7, 18 and 19. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. So here's the balance. The New Testament is filled with commands to tell believers stop sinning. Why? Because believers sin. But the New Testament also says that the trajectory of our life should be bending towards wanting to obey. That's what Peter's getting at. Are you growing in obedience? Are you more obedient now than you used to be? When you're disobedient, do you hate your sin? Are you striving to follow Jesus and you listen to Pastor Steve or you listen to the teaching of the Word and you want to do it even if you stumble and fall? Those are all evidences that the Spirit of God is within you. That's how you can be certain of God's calling of you. But if those things are completely absent... You have reason to question. So I'll give you my testimony and why all of this is near and dear to me. When I was a teenager, traveling to California, somebody on a plane, and I grew up in church, somebody on a plane said, you have to ask Jesus into your heart. Okay? I remember, with the sincerity that I knew, okay, I asked Jesus in my heart. I even got down on my knees. That makes it real sincere. And I identified that for years as my salvation. I must be saved. The guy told me, ask Jesus into your heart. I asked Jesus into my heart. But then if you looked at my life when I left home and went into college, it was literally an unbroken string for years of vile wickedness. And I didn't hate it. I relished it. I wasn't struggling, going, I shouldn't, I shouldn't. I was full tilt wicked. I was a nice guy. But I was evil in my heart. And I loved the evil. And yet during that entire time, I would tell you, I'm saved. Why? Because this guy on this plane told me something and I asked Jesus in my heart. 
Peter, had someone shown me this text, would have said to me, look at your life. Are you certain about God calling and choosing you? Now, God was merciful to me. I survived several things that should have killed me. God is sovereign. And one day, when I went to church to appease Debbie, because I loved her, and she wanted to go to church, and I didn't. I'd rather watch football on Sunday. Football starts at 10.30 in California. We were living there. It's a big disruption to my day. But a pastor was preaching on the holiness of God, and I realized I'm in trouble. All that I've said for all those years was not true in my life, which means I didn't believe what I said I believed. In fact, the reason why I left being a lawyer to be a pastor was driven by a haunting question. Why didn't, why didn't anybody tell me? I grew up in church. I was around Christians. Why didn't anybody tell me? So, I went to seminary so I could tell people. And that's what's happening today. After I was saved, the parable of the sowers made a lot of sense to me. Some people received the word with joy. That was me. But there's no root. Other people, it's the busyness of life. But if you've genuinely believed, you'll bear fruit. And you'll do the work that God's called you to do. So for today, we'll be done. But assurance is obtainable, but it requires you to honestly examine the scriptures to evaluate your life. I'm thankful for God's mercy. I was talking to someone earlier, not in here. Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I forgive my brother? Seven times? Being magnanimous. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And I was thinking to myself, thank goodness God's forgiveness is even greater than that. Because I do love him, but I still fall short. And this, the 30th year, at some point, This year, I don't know the date, it'll be 30 years that I've been saved, 1993. I'm thankful that I have a high priest who can sympathize with my weaknesses. He has no sin. And I'm thankful for the promise of God that when I fall short, if I confess my sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And I'm thankful that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even though Satan will continually tell us there's no hope for you. But somewhere in your life, there's got to be some evidence that God changed your heart. And if God changed your heart, he will have changed your life as well. So I pray that's a reality for all of us. I'm sorry that we didn't get farther than this today, but we'll come back next week and continue studying. So join me as I close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I don't ever want to do anything that causes someone 
to be concerned about their salvation. By the same token, Lord, I want people to be honest with themselves and honest with you. I thank you, Lord, for the the ability we have to examine the scriptures and evaluate our lives, Lord. You're not hiding the ball from us. You're not playing a game of cat and mouse. You're not trying to trick us or deceive us. We can know. And Lord, it would bring joy to my heart if every single person in this room knows that they've been called and chosen by you. But Lord, it's always possible because of your word that some are not quite there yet. And I pray that they'll examine their hearts honestly. They'll examine their lives honestly. And if they don't truly know you, that today would be the day that they would truly repent and believe. Lord, I pray that you would apply this teaching to our hearts. Lord, I pray that it's understandable because I don't want to confuse anyone. But I also pray, Lord, that we would take it to heart. That we would test ourselves. That we would examine ourselves. That we would diligently work to make certain of our calling and choosing by you. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. I look forward to seeing you, Lord willing, next week.